0: All right. Well, we've got a great episode today with Carson Porter. This is somebody that I've gotten to know. Welcome to the show, Carson. What's up? I've gotten to know Carson here the last ten months or so through Apex, uh, one of the best uh, mastermind groups out there. And you know, titled this show "Your Life, Uh, Your Life, Your Design," and really was inspired. I'm just gonna—we're just gonna jump right in. We're gonna get to know one another as we go through the show or have our guests get to know as we go through the show. Carson, you just made this epic move with your family to (laughs) Idaho, right? And it's one of those things, it it appeared as one of those things, like uh, if if everybody listening and watching has that like iceberg meme where the success is that little tip of the iceberg poking out, but nobody sees all the hard work underneath the surface. That's kind of what I think it looked like to some people on the outside. For me, because that's a move out to the Mountain West is very much on our radar uh, in the next handful of years. I was just like in love with it. So let's jump in. What what was that? What's that all about? Are you in <laughs> Idaho now?
1: Um, yeah. Tell, tell us why, why that move. Why Idaho? So I was born and raised in the Phoenix area, right, um, where it's hotter than hell. And... Uh, Spent a lot of time in Southern Utah where it's also hotter than than hell. Most people think of Utah and think snow. They don't think of the Southwest corner only about an hour and a half out of Las Vegas where it's still 115 in the summer. Um, Spent a bunch of time in Las Vegas where it's still hotter than hell. And throughout this entire time, uh, especially my marriage, the last uh, going on almost 11 years now coming up next month. But uh, my wife and I have visited Idaho. Specifically, the southeast um, area of Idaho. So, uh, Idaho Falls, her family's from here. She was born here, and um, we've just always loved it, always felt like it's been home. And we've always loved coming up and recreating, whether that's snowmobiling or coming up and seeing family, getting out of the heat in the summer, uh, whatever. So, we've talked about this move for, you know, 10 years, uh, more than that, and, and just kind of, for lack of a better term, fantasized. About coming up here, but we were never able to. Um, I've owned my own businesses for a long time. When we first got married, I was in auto repair, and obviously, with uh, with an auto repair shop, you're kind of tied to a location. Yep. Uh, my next business was an auto repair shop, and then when I got into uh, the career path that I'm in now, into finance, insurance, wealth management, we started in a very traditional sense. I started with an insurance agency that was again tied to brick and mortar, and so we just. Never could um, break out of that. Well, you know, it was it was actually well before COVID. I started traveling a lot for work, um, flying all around. I, I happened to have a little bit of success in 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 some areas with mostly business owners and high net worth individuals, high income earners. And um, so I was flying all around the United States doing work at the time and when COVID hit and everybody had to shut down. It was actually really simple for us to just pivot to a primarily virtual model. And over the last couple of years, we've picked that apart and I wouldn't say perfected it, but definitely fine tuned it to the point where we were just up here for the 4th of July. I don't want to give away the secrets. Like Idaho sucks, everybody. Don't move here. <laughs> um, but the, their 4th of July is it like, Unverified, but but what they'll tell you is it is the biggest fireworks show this side of the I think Mississippi. It's it's massive. It's I mean we're talking yeah. forty five minutes of just rolling fireworks, one right after another. Huge. So we were up here for the Fourth of July just you know a month and a half ago or so, and we're laying in bed at the hotel and and uh, look over at, at Camille, my wife, and was just like, "Screw it, let's do this. Why why not? Let's just let's do it. We love it up here. Let's just pull the freaking trigger." And, um, you know, originally when I said that we, she was like, Hey, about when I was like, I don't know, give me a couple months to like figure a few things out and whatever. And so we get looking around and everything just lines up three weeks later, we're pulling out of, uh, pulling out of Las Vegas and and we're up here. So we literally were up here the beginning of July, talking about it. And before the end of July, before the 30th, we were done and moved. So, um, but you're right. It, didn't it happen overnight. It took, I mean, a decade of wanting it, but a decade of building businesses, planning, reshaping, failing. I can't tell you how many times that um that we failed out of business. And unfortunately we didn't go out of business, but there we were flat broke again, trying to figure right. out how do we put the pieces back together and and build some kind of a business that provides uh the for the financial well-being not only our family, but what about the people in the business too, you know? You said there's ten years, right? There was ten years building up to this moment
0: uh, to create that life by design. That and life's not over, right? I mean, you still got a lot. <laughs> I have hope they've right? <laughs> got a lot yeah. of life to live. Um, but it's a major milestone achievement, and it wouldn't have been able to be done without. You, you said wanting it for ten years, without maneuvering through these various iterations of business. So I know the backstory about. Um, the automotive shops, you know, one of them you had with your father, then you had your own. Um, Prior to that, you were doing door-to-door. And I I, honestly, I think some of the best salespeople, best business owners out there have done door-to-door. Talk a little bit about that and and some of the lessons you learned there.
1: Yeah. um, So I turned 18, I graduated high school, and I wanted out of small town, southern Utah, uh, where I was in the ticket at the time was door-to-door stuff. I actually originally got in it on the technician side, installing Dish Network, DirecTV, um, that type of stuff. So um, literally the night, the morning after grad night, uh, loaded up in my, I had a 2002 S10 pickup. It was all jacked up and big 33-inch tires. Loaded up and headed for Fort Wayne, Indiana. And made some pretty good money. I spent every damn dollar of it uh, before I got (laughs) home. Uh, that tends to just be the case, right? But, right. but it really opened my mind to uh, a, a lot of things. Like, man, you should eat your broccoli even when mom's not telling you to. Uh, otherwise, you end up feeling sick. Um, but, but some of the bigger things that opened my mind too were concepts that, hey, you know, I was raised working hard. We we always did all these things, but um, I really do have control over my income. I can get up today and drag my feet or I can get up today and just kill it. It also opened my mind to the, the reality that it's not about the effort that you put in at all. You can sit here and tell me you work hard. You can bust your knuckles. You can do all this stuff. But what matters at the end of the day is what did you get done? And even though at the time I was on the technician side, it was still the same. It was all commission-based. How many jobs did you do? You get paid. Well, after that summer, um, I came back. Actually, worked a sales floor. Uh, you know Daniel Blue, right?
0: Um, I
1: do. Yeah, Daniel Blue and I worked on the same sales floor together. This was like clear back in like 2007. Wow, uh, small world, something like that. Yeah, um, and I had no idea he even existed till I till I met him in Apex. So, um, but it was it was like a boiler room sales floor, and I was only there for a few months before I headed back out on the doors doing um, security systems for a company called Pinnacle Security at the time. And again, it was this reiteration of, wow, I can do and have and be anything I want to if I wake up and do it. Or I can be in as disastrous of a situation as I want to be in if I wake up and don't. But right. it's all on me and it always has been. I've got to go do, right? Yeah, And that's, I think, what what helped our auto repair shops take off actually was that mentality of, it's up to me to bring it in. You know, most auto repair shops throw up a, they throw a lift in the bay, they have tools, they they open the sign and they're like, hey, we're open for business.
0: And, yeah, they do the, the
1: field of dreams plan, right? They build exactly, it and just expect everybody to come. Exactly. It was never that way for me. For me, it was always, you know, I, I grew up in a very religious home and, and this isn't to step on my father in any way, shape or form. He's an amazing man. One of my heroes taught me a lot of things. Um, but he always used to, to quote from, from the Bible. You need to wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, trust in him. If, you know, we just show up to work, he'll provide the work, but that was never enough for me, frankly. Right. And when times were slow, I always went back to this, this moment in time where I was doing door-to-door sales. And if moments were slow, I had an unexpected bill or maybe they weren't. And I just wanted to buy something else or do something else. I could wake up today, I could go put my hand in somebody else's. And by the end of that day, I've got revenue. And yep. like I say, that concept has carried me. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, there's, there's something there in your history. Um, you shared in the, in the pre show notes about struggles as a kid, seeing money struggles as a kid. Yeah. Um, you know, so how did that frame you? Growing up, and we kind of heard a little bit about it, but dig deeper into that. Let's pull back another another layer, if you will. <laughs> um, how does that frame your drive and determination today for what you do for
1: your customers, right, and for your clients? Um, I think to to I guess let me surmise it, and then I can come back at it and and fill in some gaps. What it does for me is it's filled me with a moral obligation for revenue. Um, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, which I think there 's a big difference, you know just about anybody can have an LLC, but a true entrepreneur is somebody that goes and creates value where it did not previously exist right and if i 'm going to put myself in that position i 'm going to ask other people to trust me, like my wife who trusts me to pay the bills, my boys who trust me to put f- food in their mouth uh, or or fuel in in the gas tanks on their ATVs if i 'm going to ask my team to trust me that hey, come and work and, and put in your blood, sweat, and tears, and I'm going to make sure you're able to achieve the things you want to financially and otherwise. And then even my community, right? I have this moral obligation to make freaking money. And it's not that money makes happiness. It's just this reality that everything in this world, in this life, costs money. And if we can get that out of the way, then we can focus on the things that we actually want to focus on. So that's what it's done for me and and where it's brought me. If we go all the way back to my childhood, I remember the year I quit believing in Santa Claus. Let me tell you about that. (laughs) Um, I was like six, maybe seven at the time. And we had this house. It it was literally, uh, we we didn't have a lot of money, right? This house was the only house in in our neighborhood, I'm going to say. And it was literally in the middle of a cement plant. Um, Like The guy had come and bought the property around it, but he couldn't get that little piece. And he built a cement plant around it. We had sand piles over here and three eighths chip over here and three quarter gravel over there and a mixing pit and a waste pit over there. Like that's what I grew that's a lot of what I grew up in. Your visual as a kid growing up was hard work. Yeah we saw
0: we saw yeah, a lot like, of my it was my it was literally hard work all around you like hardcore exactly. construction concrete work.
1: Yeah everybody's working hard my dad was busting his ass um you know every everybody's just putting it to it but but somehow the money wasn't there. I remember sneaking upstairs on Christmas Eve because what six-year-old doesn't want to see Santa Claus, right? Yep. And I sneak up the stairs in this, in this rickety house on the cement plant there. And I'm looking through, it's an old like 70s house. And so I'm looking from the top of the stairwell, kind of a split level type situation through the kitchen into the dining room and then the living rooms beyond that. And I can see my parents at the table. And, and it's one of the only times I remember seeing my, my mom cry a little bit. And I don't know if that's just me looking back in my imagination. um, but but there's not a lot of times she's a very tough, very resilient woman. And I remember listening to her laying there, listening to them talk about whether or not they were going to run and make a a trip to, you know, Walmart or whatever to pick up some Christmas stuff or if they were going to pay the rent and Mm. go make a grocery run. Right. And in the morning there was presents under the tree we didn't get kicked out of the house there was food on the table my parents made it happen somehow you know and i still look back and i'm i'm just amazed that you know i've got six siblings seven of us kids and and they made it work somehow every single time um but it um it did something to me it just struck a chord and and i try and play like i'm you know this big bad you know whatever but it in reality a little bit of an empath and it, it hurt. It didn't hurt because Santa Claus wasn't real. It hurt because I didn't want to see my parents hurt like that. I didn't want to see them worry or struggle. Growing up, I always paid uh, from that point on. It was just always a, a pain point. Anytime money came up, it just. Hurt my heart to hear them or other people talk about it. I was born in the late 80s. You've got Black Friday 1989. Then you've got, then you've got the mid-90s, then you've got the dot com burst. Then we've got the the Great Recession in 2008. And all throughout my my childhood and, and adolescent and young adult years, I keep hearing from people, there's no opportunity, there's no money, there's no opportunity, there's no money, there's no way for me to climb out of this hole. And it just like it hurts my heart, Jeff, to hear yeah. that. Um, especially when I was able to figure it out, you know, as, as a 13 year old, I can go, that was really where I knocked doors the first time. Uh, if you want the truth is, is oh, interesting. 13 years old. Yeah. Going and knocking the door because I wanted to afford a dirt bike and yeah, we helped dad at the auto shop and when he could, he'd pay us a little bit, but, but frankly it was few and far between in those years. Yeah. Couldn't and, go buy a dirt bike with it. Yeah. And so what did I do? Well, I had my little Stanley tool set I'd gotten for Christmas one year, like $20 from Walmart, right? So I'd go knock doors in the neighborhood and ask people to change the oil on their motorcycles or or clean the carburetors on their lawnmowers and their weed eaters and, and get them tuned up and spruced up and, and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, for me, it, there had always been this, if I want something, I can do it, but it's on me to go get it. And if I'll go get it, I can have anything I want. So it just never quite made sense to me why people are like oh there's no opportunity there's there's no money there's no this there's no that but i know that's a lot to unpack right there but yeah yeah (laughs) no i mean i think you know i think in light of our current
0: current times we're in it's easy to see where people feel there is no opportunity because so many people sit back and wait to be told what to do wait to be told where their station is in life they don't take their own agency and and agency meaning their own, uh, not not insurance agency, their own agency <laughs> as a person, right? Their own, right. their own self determination to go do what you did at thirteen. I did the same thing. I pushed our pushed our lawnmower around the neighborhood cutting grass. I made some money. Went and bought some car cleaning, you know, uh, stuff to c- clean interior cars, and you know, paid for uh, paid for a youth trip for a youth retreat to Colorado of all places. That was mm-hmm. the first thing, and then I wanted to buy a car, so I. Did more of that to go do that, and that was the first business I built and sold. Um, <clears throat> but there's there is something to be said, and again, it's very appropriate into the title of our show: "Your Life, Your Design." About taking control uh, in your own way, and you know, coming back to what this means for your clients, for the people that you do work for, for your agents that that are under you that work with your company. Um, you know you can kind of start to see how it comes together where there is this I love what you said there's a moral obligation for revenue um, you know you can you can rely on the the scripture and the the statements that money's the root of all evil well that might be true unless you don't take it the way Carson just said where there's a moral obligation to go make money and then the other side of that is to do good for people return it to them to where they have generational wealth created return it to them where they don't have to worry about Christmas rent or groceries, return it to them where they have the ability to provide and do things for their families that they didn't get to do as a child. So I think that's all very, very, very important. Um, so you've built a couple different insurance agencies. Um, I'm going to peel back, uh, go uh, kind of a left turn, peel back another layer in the conversation. So in our group in Apex, we all rely on each other. We come to each other to celebrate wins. We come to each other to get, um, some support and uh, a little push. You had an event, and you know, you you shared in our group. You're like, "Hey, I need some help with this event. I need to get get my mind around it. Need to get need a little extra push." I think would be the best way I could summarize it. And in the group, kind of came together and was like, "Yeah, you got this, man." So, tell us about what that event did for you, um, and because and, I I really kind of think you shared. There's some next levels coming outside of that event for your agency.
1: Yeah. Um, so we've done well in insurance and, and we've done, I would say, even better in wealth management. And as we've done that, we've created several businesses along the way. One of those being a mentoring network for insurance agents and, and financial advisors, uh, particularly our niche is insurance agents that want to become financial advisors. A lot of people don't realize that the two are uh, very closely related um, on the financial services side of things uh, in regards to insurance. And it's it's very easy to make that change over, or, or I wouldn't say easy, but <clears throat> uh, there's not a lot of steps in between. You've already done uh, a good portion of the work to become um, a wealth manager at that point. And so that's my, my forte. We have built this community up. And at this point, we've got a few thousand people in our community um, going through the steps, trying to figure out how do I take care of my moral obligation for revenue so that I can not just grow an agency and have an income but pour into my community through employing people and taking care of people's needs and etc. So we decided um, this late spring, early summer uh, to put on our first uh, live event. And for me, I'm not a big rah-rah guy. I I don't do a lot of the rah-rah events myself. I don't go to them. It just doesn't do much for me personally to, to go sit and get motivated. I can do that on YouTube and then go ride a dirt bike afterwards or, or go, go back to work afterwards. I don't need to take three days out of my life for that. Right. Um, so I wanted one of the commitments I made when, when we started this was that we were going to keep it, um, very much in integrity with my core values. And one of those is that I'm authentic. I am the same person in all times and all places and doing all things. And, and why I bring that up is because I again I don't have this love for rah-rah events. So rather than doing a low-ticket rah-rah event where it's fifty or a hundred or three hundred dollars for somebody to come and get pumped up and motivated, I've certainly got the context to get the speakers there at this point. What we decided to do was to put on an event where we could guarantee where if people came, we kept it small, we could give everyone the attention and the granular, the granular information and work that they needed over the course of two to three days, and it would put them ahead six to 12 months in their agency. right? And in order to do that, it couldn't be a low-cost event. It was going to be 2500 bucks a person for a standard ticket. We had some VIP tickets above and beyond that. Uh, they got a few things like a dinner and, and a few other things. But um, with that, like I say, we decided to cap it at just 25 people. So uh we filled that up. And again, Apex was a was a big part of that, helping me create the vision, uh, helping me overcome, you know, I I came to y'all s- how many times when it was like, hey, I just don't know if I'm gonna fill this thing out. Should I give everybody their money and back out now? You know, there's a lot of my own uh imposter syndrome, frankly. And I hate that term because I feel like it's becoming overused, but but really it was me not believing in in the impact and value that we had to give. Um but we stayed on course. We put that event on. And I think it was a smashing success. At the end of that event, I offered everybody a uh, a rebate, 100% rebate. Hey, if you don't feel like you're at least 6-12 months ahead, let me know. I want to give you your money back. We gave zero people their money back. Uh, in fact, most of them ended up buying further into our programs and investing in themselves and, and doing other things. Uh, and many others are on the short list right now, getting ready to jump into... Some of those uh, bigger levels of investing in themselves through through our network at this point. Um, but coming out of that event, I think some of the biggest wins that we had, uh, I personally, my confidence level went through the roof. It was like, holy shit, you know, not only can we put on an event, which my wife did, all of the coordination on that, and it was phenomenal. It's the first time her and I have worked together since my first few months in insurance, where I say I fired her, she said she quit. <laughs> Truth is probably somewhere in between, but um, yeah, it's always a, she, always a heady topic. Uh, spouses yeah. doing business together, but she she coordinated that whole event and did a phenomenal job. Everybody that came out had a blast, <clears throat> and we came out of that like I say, on fire. Everybody that came is on fire. They're all blowing up right now. Uh, most of them, you know, they spent twenty five hundred bucks. Most of them have made $20,000 extra by now. Um, and, and we're continuing to follow up with them. Uh, right. You know, where right. are you at? Where are you going? And they become our biggest raving fans, which has helped grow grow our message and network as well. But we also immediately, I mean, like the day after, started our phones started ringing with sponsors, lead vendors in the industry, and other training platforms, and all sorts of stuff. People who are uh, bigger influencers in the space than than I am uh, at this point, calling to ask if they could speak at the next one. Whether or not I let them, that's a whole nother thing because again, we've got right. these core values and core focus we got to stay in integrity with. But the fact that they're, they're further ahead in this micro-influencer sphere, sphere than I am, but they're calling me and asking to be on my stage, um, it was pretty, pretty damn cool. And we've got a lot of really cool things coming up for our event uh, already next year. So... Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I mean, I think the lesson
0: there is when you put things in motion... A lot of good stuff really happens, right? I mean, you you say imposter syndrome is a cliched statement, doing the work is a cliched statement, but they're both very true statements. You know, nobody, nobody wants to come on a stage that never happened, right? Like you could say you built it, you could feel the dreams of the event and say, well, you know, we had the room booked, we had a kick-ass soundstage, we had, you know, great party favors, but you know, we didn't do enough work and only two people decided to decided to come um, you decided to double down and and fill it out and make it a success um, which really goes back to that you know that childhood uh, foundation that you kind of built for yourself of going out there doing the work understanding there is opportunity anywhere you turn anywhere you look to go and generate revenue for yourself uh, and success for yourself which is very Uh, Very cool. So part of this all, with and this is all under your Rev Agency Syndicate, (laughs) correct? Yeah. Um, Yes. Yeah. So part of that uh, that strikes me as interesting, uh, because it's a statement you feel you need to make, uh, is that part of your goal with Rev Agency Syndicate is to create and grow an honest, ethical community of life insurance agents. So what does that mean exactly? for you and,
1: and for those that work with you. Yeah, in, in this business, um, it's, it's pretty easy to not be so honest, uh, frankly, um, and to hide it really, really well. And you'll never go to jail. There's, it's not a white collar crime. Ethics in insurance and wealth management are a gray area. And they are, if we had to take all of the actions that, uh, that you could perform as an insurance agent or a wealth manager or financial planner, You've got ten or fifteen percent that are for sure you're going to jail. You've got ten or fifteen percent that are in the clear, in the white. You never have to worry about it. And you have about eighty percent of what everybody's doing on a daily basis. That's somewhere in between, and it's a gray area. And the gray area is so wide, it's open to interpretation. I mean, you literally have these, the state statute uh, in in many states. Um, the word is ambiguity. Whatever is left to ambiguity, that's what we'll we'll prosecute. Versus. No, this is what's right, and this is what's wrong. Uh, when I came into the business, I had a lot of uh, really great people around me, and I had some not so great people around me. So I got to see both sides of that and how it impacts people's lives. Like if you take a uh, hundred thousand or half a million or five million dollars from somebody, they've been busting their ass, working their whole life to put aside and save for retirement and and do all these things, um, and then you go and mismanagement or or you make recommendations that are suitable, but are not necessarily in their best interest, you just spat in the face of 20 or 30 or 40 years of that person's life. You spat in the face of them having to tell their kids no how many times because they couldn't afford it because they knew they needed to put that money over here so that they could retire and not push a shopping cart across Walmart parking lots in, in, in retirement. And, and so it's just something that, um, like I say, I I don't want to flirt with. At all, ever ever, and um, and I want to grow a community around me of insurance agents of financial advisors of wealth managers that's committed to the same cause, always acting in somebody's best interest instead of simply doing what's suitable, which is what we call the that's suitability requirements are the regulatory regulatory code in in our field well, why? Why should I do what's suitable if I can do what's best? That just right, seems stupid. Right. So, does that make any sense? Or <laughs> no, it, it it makes sense to me. And
0: I think I think if we dig deeper into this, if we look right now through the lens of the cost of money now, the cost of having your investments in the usual suspects, right? The four hundred one ks, the IRAs that are returning six to eight percent. Is that fair. Maybe
1: um, lower if you're Yeah, if you're, you're gonna be a little on the high side for net return right now yeah. on average. Yeah. So, you know, right now there's a lot of
0: uh, financial advisors out there that are just kind of riding along. I think a lot of them are in fear because the financial markets are really weird right now. You got inflation at eight, nine percent. So if you're only returning six and but inflation's at eight or nine, you're actually
1: you're losing money, right? Right. Right. Yeah, we have to get a little more a little more creative and a little more dedicated to the task so part of the thing that i'm always notice you didn't say aggressive there i like no. that no dedicated not, not aggressive. and creative dedicated and creative you know we can we can be dedicated and creative and do the work do the damn work to go find strategies build and create strategies um, i've got a, a strategy i get paid a lot of money to teach people how how to do not just from clients but i get paid money from top insurers and top platforms and and broker dealers to teach their representatives how to do this. Because I spent years doing the work, figuring out how to structure and layer these plans together. What I did, Jeff, was back in the day, I took a look around and just kind of used some common sense and just asked myself if really, if any one of these things was that much better than another, why is everybody not already doing that? Because everybody's got Google and YouTube, like, our access to quality information is so immediate and so impactful that the standard, the, the modern day standard consumer is not stupid. They are more no, educated not. than they've ever been, right? So why is not everybody doing this best thing? Well, maybe it's because there's no such thing as the best thing for everybody. So when I looked at that, it made me start really looking at these products and these strategies. And what I found is that they're all the best thing under the right circumstance and the right scenario for the right person. Even so much as, I mean, we brought up life insurance a few times. Take a life insurance policy. We talk a lot about like whole life or, or other cash value life insurance policies. They're not all the same, but they're not necessarily ones better than another. right? I could have one where this particular carrier with that policy, we call them rating bands, okay, has really phenomenal rating bands for a 40-year-old male living in Ohio, who is this height weight and this and this and this and this. And what that means is the cost basis, the actual money out of pocket to manage that policy is phenomenally low. But for a 50-year-old or the 50-year-old next door with the same height weight, it sucks because their their age bands are different. So I need to choose another carrier who wants that piece of business more and is gonna prove it through how competitive they are with um with their cost basis offerings on these on these strategies. Well, we can take that same thing, we can apply it to stocks, bonds, mutual funds, 401k offerings, everything in between. Who's willing to work for the business with that customer and client? And then, once we put that piece in, is that enough? Or can we structure and layer additional services and products and strategies on top of that to build a more ethical way of accomplishing this person's solution? And so as we do that, what, what, it, what it started with was, here's an insurance agent who's telling you to go talk to an attorney and a CPA, and let's set up a trust and do some tax planning. And then it turned into this insurance agent who decided to pick up a couple extra licenses, uh, fiduciary certificate and all these other things. And now he gets to start talking to you about not only the insurance and the taxes and the trust work. But now we're talking about external opportunities like private placements and real estate and all these other things that we can do. And instead of doing this or this, what if we did this and this? Right? What if we layer them together and create points of arbitrage where yeah, you might only be making like you said 6-8% here, but you can make 6-8% here, pick up one or two points in arbitrage through a, a a transactional event we can create with all this structuring and layering. And then at the same time, pick up six or 8% here, or 10 or 20% in some of these private placements we use. Well, now, as a whole, that one account, that one sub account can, can create a, an offset earning through all this arbitrage and all this structuring and layering. It can net out 15, 20% per year. And we can do that without ever putting money at risk in a marketplace by buying, say, like a blue chip stock. Not saying blue chip stocks are bad, but I'm saying, If all you have is $100,000, you probably shouldn't spend that whole $100,000 on one blue chip stock. Right. Right.
0: right. So, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely dedicated and creative. And, you know, a podcast about insurance and financial planning is like typically a snooze fest. But really, (laughs) uh, what you're talking about is exciting for me to hear. And I want to have listeners and watchers kind of refocus on this. What you just kind of laid out, I'm not going to ask you to reveal the secret sauce because obviously you get paid yeah. for it. And you have obligation to the people. It's Alfredo, you coach. man, the secret right, sauce is
1: Alfredo. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. But
0: but really, what you just laid out uh, in a nutshell, because coming into the Apex world, and and you know, this will be a little commercial for Apex. The biggest thing that I've learned from folks like you and ev- and everybody else in the group. Is, is that there are far more creative, far more dedicated and unique ways to make money. And what you just laid out, that correct me if I'm wrong, this is how the wealthiest of the wealthiest people in our society grow their wealth. They make their money work for themselves. And if we go right back to the beginning of our conversation, I would imagine a big chunk of what you laid out is why you were able to just at, this, at the appearance of a snap of the fingers, moved to Idaho in three weeks because you had a lot of things in place. Um, so, I mean, I love what you shared. And I think if we apply it even more to a, uh, an appropriate moment in our time, when you're looking at, you know, there's so much angst about taxes, right? Billionaires don't pay their fair share. Um, you know, of course, what's always left out in that conversation is all the tax revenue they do Create through payroll tax, uh, you know, state use tax, fuel tax, sales tax. You know, like just in my little retail business, which is small in the grand scheme of things, because we do three to four times what an average good store does. There's no ticker tape parade for me for the three to four times state sales tax revenue I get. I don't get any of that. In fact, in Pennsylvania, uh, our governor just kind of craps all over independent business, but that's a whole other topic. but uh, the, the reality is what you've laid out is, is how people do get wealthy um, through, these, um, through these different layering, structuring. You, you shared a word, arbitrage. I'm not sure a lot of people know what that is. Um, can you share a little bit about what that financial vehicle is and
1: how it's applicable to a lot of different things? Yeah. So arbitrage, the most simple way to put arbitrage, and, and arbitrage can look like a million things, Right. But Absolutely. the most simple way to, to describe arbitrage is transactional well. Okay. Or transactional accumulation. And, and you can have positive arbitrage or negative arbitrage. But, but what it is, is it is accumulation, um, either positive or negative based on, uh, transaction and placement. Okay. Um, a, a good, um, example of that might be, um being able to take loans off of off of a brokerage account maybe you've got a brokerage account over at Merrill Lynch or something like that and they'll let you take a participating loan is what we call it if it's non-participating it's hard to create arbitrage but if it's participating let's say you have $100,000 over there and you can do this same thing by the way with life insurance policies yeah, there's several things sometimes with your 401k some 401k's have uh, loan provisions or favorable participating loan provisions that'll allow you to do this but we can take a loan from our account and our account can still sit there and perform. And, and much of the time that loan, we need to look at the terms, is going to be less than what we're actually earning. So let's say we're earning 6 to 8% with that 100000 Well, If I can take it for 4% uh, and I can take, say, 90%, I can take $90,000, pay 4% on it, but because it's participating, my $90,000 is still effectively in that account, whether it's a brokerage account or a life insurance policy or whatever, earning a full 8%. So that offset there of 4%, that's arbitrage. okay? And I've got a negative net arbitrage, except I'm going to take my $90,000 and go put it to work somewhere else. Let's say I pick up a a private placement that's paying 10% prime. And maybe there's a profit share, but let's say you're only getting 10%. Well, now I'm getting 10% on my 90 here and I'm getting eight on it here, but it cost me four. So I'm still getting 14% on that 90,000. Plus I'm still getting 8% on my other 10,000 right now today. Well, that that four extra percent on that 90,000, that's arbitrage. That is transactional or placement-based accumulation. It's there simply because we have terms and conditions that allow us to place, layer, and structure money accordingly. And now we can pick up additional points in between. We can make up... uh, Arbitrage doesn't always have to be interest earnings like that. Sometimes it's paid points, right? Sometimes, what if I can pick up arbitrage instead of simply being uh, somebody that buys into that private placement? What if me, because I'm willing to do the work to get a fiduciary license, now I can get paid for bringing money to the private placement? Okay, maybe 1% or 2% even. So I bring my 90,000 over and not only am I making 10% on it, but they're going to pay me one or 2% per year for bringing that money over too. And if I go find other people, they'll pay me one or 2% on that. Right. But now I just picked up because I went and got a fiduciary license, an extra one or 2% per year. I mean, that's it, it pays for itself over time. So those little layering and structuring pieces that create events or transactional events to pay you additional. Uh, earning opportunities—that's arbitrage, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and I think, I think what's most important about everything you just shared. Hopefully, if you're listening and you've not heard of these things, you were you were inspired to ask some questions. Maybe if you're a financial planner, you could certainly reach out to Carson, Uh our great producer Chris here at Cast Ahead Productions. By the way, if you need anything, podcasting has my unequivocal endorsement to help your show be amazing. Um. But Chris put all of Carson's contact info in the show notes, wherever you're watching or listening. Um, But you could reach out to him, and I'm sure Carson can connect you with somebody local or through his group. But if you're inspired, you should be. Because here's, I think, as we get into the last part of our show, here's where I think the average person working, busting their knuckles, grinding it out today, has a right to be upset. And it's, they weren't taught any of this in school. They're not even taught this in college, you know. The the saddest part about, um, again, we've had some appropriateness or some timeliness, I should say, in our conversation with uh, current issues is the the debt cancellation policy that was just put into place for student loan debt. In all that conversation, not none of it was done with. Well, let's do it, providing you take a class to understand how finances work. Let's do it, providing you take a class to understand. Where your skills lie and are rewarded in this world. None of that. You know, And in fact, depending on the day you catch me, I might actually agree with debt cancellation for this reason. I just said it. We aren't taught. our children are not taught any of these things in school. I'm of the belief that school and the modern education system is so corrupt, so fraudulent, so destructive to our youth and it peddles this college myth that it is the only path for success, which it's not. You know that, and I know that. That if that's the way I believe it is, depending on the day, I might agree that, yeah, it's entirely fraudulent. Give everybody their money back. Right? But my soul of going out and doing the work won't allow that. I I just won't fully dig in on that. But where where does our education system for youth, for college-age kids, for teenagers... Where does it need to improve, and how, from your view? Because you're you're in this financial mix every day of the week.
1: Oh, that's a big question, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's such a, a big question. We could we could riff on that for three hours. Um, I think some of the biggest failures in the financial system, or in the education system, in regards to financial responsibility and teaching re- financial responsibility is, yeah. I mean, I would say there's one or two or three things, but I know as I go along, I'm going to keep pulling up another one. So let me not limit this. And um, let me just climb up on my high horse here and, and whatever. But I think number one, it's uh, the blind can't lead the blind, right? And your financial system, uh, your, your educators are amazing people. They're amazing people. There is a large majority of those people who made the same mistake That you're talking about, and and now it's continuing to perpetuate, right? Um, As a nation, we for years, for decades, we pushed that you had to get a degree, you had to get a degree, you had to get a degree. Have you ever seen the movie Accepted? It's a comedy movie. Yes, yeah, a little randy at times, and you know, but uh, it's a good movie, hilarious movie, funny, and, and and important. So there's this scene where they have the parents' day, and the parents come and meet the dean. And the dean, you know, who is not an actual dean, goes off on this rant. I wish we had the clip. And it's just like, you know, off the wall. Think Tommy Boy times 10, right? You know, putting fingers in a roll in the whole nine yards. And then he ends it. And, and the dad is sitting there like, so what, what's your point? What the hell are you talking about? He's like, there's only one reason kid, these kids give, give us their money and come to school. And it's to get a good job, right? And that's it. That's the myth that's been perpetuated over and over and over again. I will tell you this. I dropped out of college. I dropped out of college, got in, realized it wasn't for me. It wasn't because I had bad grades. I set the curve in most of my classes, but it just drove me nuts and ground my gears. I decided to go to work instead. I make more than most CEOs uh, of most big Fortune 500 companies. Um, I, take home, I take home more. That's pretty freaking cool, right? I know people, um, I know plumbers that are making two, three, four, five hundred, a million dollars a year, right? On the flip side of that, I've got friends in the medical industry and and, in the legal industry that absolutely needed the education to be able to do what they're doing. They needed the uh, certificates. I have a brother um, who is a a school counselor, a speech pathologist, and there's really only one way to get that education. It's through the school system, but it is... In alignment with his core values and his core focus, he didn't do it to get a good job. He got it because he wanted to pour value into his community in that way, right? And I think that's the conversation that's not happening. We're we're treating college and and the education system like, uh, you know, we're we're trying to print people and and print. Jobs and opportunities, but you can't print jobs and opportunities. You take the people that are already there. They're born with their God-given talent, the ability to think and reason, the ability to pick up and move objects and and do things. And then the number one thing they're they're born with is you mentioned it earlier, <clears throat> agency, the ability to choose. But what we never cultivate is their confidence in their ability to choose. And to choose things that they can, that allow them to go and do and have and be and achieve. So instead we choose something that's going to pay the damn bills. Damn bills get paid fast when you cope, do and have and be and achieve. Bills are almost insignificant at that point. But if all you're ever focused on is bills, pay the bills, pay the bills, that's all you're ever going to get. And so we're having the wrong conversation and the wrong conversation is being perpetuated by frankly the wrong people like again the blind can't lead the blind i think they do a great job teaching but uh most of, most of your administrators are graduated teachers right they they taught for years and now they graduate into administration so all your decision makers all the way up come from the bottom up when in reality you should have some of this coming from the outside you should have financial professionals coming in i sat in a class uh stevens henniger college um where I, I actually got to teach the class. I got invited in as a, a guest presenter several times. And, um, you know, we sat down and started talking like financial literacy and just did some of the basics like money in versus money out. Here's your monthly income worksheet, here's a monthly expense worksheet. The only thing you have to worry about to not have to worry about money is making sure that your monthly expenses are less than your monthly income. That's it. That's all the complication that that there is to this whole thing, you know. And their mind's blown.
0: Yeah, (laughs) I have a theory on why that is such a uh, lightning rod, eye-opening moment for people today. And my theory is that direct deposit made money not real. You know, like you look at your father, you look at the people you looked at uh, growing up on that house with the cement factory. Plant all around you. At the end of the week, they took their check, they stood in line at the bank to either deposit, cash it, or do a mix of both. And you had a moment to reflect in that line. I did this first couple of years out of high school, I worked in construction. It was hard ass work. And with direct deposit, money is almost like not real anymore for some people. They have this such loose connection with it, if not any connection. And that's why when you say you just teach a balance sheet to a college student, it's eye-opening to them. Because to them, money is just not real. It's this plastic thing that's existed in their wallet or purse. And maybe they're responsible for it. Maybe a parent is. Maybe nobody is. And it's just such this eye-opening thing. And for me, it's almost so foreign, so alien for people when, when I hear stories like that, especially in a college class. Uh, I think people's unfamiliarity, and let's kind of look to wrap up on this topic as money as a tool, because that's really what it is. It's not the root of all evil. Um, It's a tool. It's an instrument. It's an instrument for happiness. It's an instrument for success. It's an instrument for wealth. It's an instrument to create dreams, to make that big move like you and your family did and create an event that helps other people uh, fulfill their dreams. Let's talk about, as we wrap up, money as a tool and all the things that can actually happen when you look at it that way.
1: Yeah. Well, where do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm asking you as the financial expert. Um, I think too many people. And so I was having this conversation the other day. Part of what we teach our agents and our advisors is get involved on social media it's the easiest place to to ditch obscurity, right? And the first principle we teach them is that social media is a tool or a toy. And I think money is the same way. It is a tool or a toy. Now, at some point, you can get to the place where you're not trying to split a dollar between being a tool and a toy, and you have excess income. Now, excess income can be split off and become this or that. But at some point, you have to prioritize the direction you're going to head with with your financial well-being? Is it a tool or a toy? With financial advisors, with with wealth managers, there's this um, kind of two prevailing concepts when it comes to saving and investing and, and all these different things. The first one is, give me an absolute positive guarantee that no matter what kind of shit hits the fan, I don't end up poor, right? And the second is, let me take my money and make me filthy rich, live a filthy rich lifestyle, have a boat, have a this, have a that, right? That's the second version. Well, the reality is, is just like we were talking about, none of those financial tools are better than another. Neither one of those is the right answer. They're both the right answer. They're both the right answer. It is a tool or a toy. You just need enough of it so that you can have tools and toys. Okay? Right. But we have to prioritize. The tool has to come before the toy. In other words, the utility. So when we're teaching financial literacy, um, and I'll teach this to like entrepreneurs, these same exact steps. Okay, agents, advisors, all these people that, that I'm working with. The first few steps are, are number one, cash flow. You have to go do something that is going to create enough cash flow so that the income worksheet is greater than the sum of your expense worksheet on a monthly basis. That's all you have to do is go cash flow that. Okay. Step number two is stability. Because Anybody can go and have one good month, whether you're in sales or this or that or the other. Maybe you're working for someone else and you ask, hey, can I put in a couple extra hours this month? They pay you a little bit extra. Okay, but what about next month? Because okay, right. if we're going to get to that toy, that play, that that be able to do fun things and create cool opportunities for yourself and other people, we've got to have more than just paying for our expenses. Right. So I can't just depend on somebody to give me a little bit extra. I have to go take it. That may come in the form of me busting my ass so I can get a raise. It may come in the form of me having a little side gig, a little side hustle, doing something on the side, opening my own business, expanding my business or whatever. But I have to build on the cash flow I originally created. Now, once I build on that cash flow and I stabilize that cash flow, right? Now I have to build on that even more. I have to build on that even more. And we do that by diversifying. Okay. That's where we start investing. Okay. Yep. Um, if you have, let's say your, your month costs $2,000 a month to run, rent, nobody costs that anymore. But let's say it costs $2,000 a month to pay your rent, buy groceries, do this, that, and the other. And you make $2,000 a month, you'll never have the money to get ahead to do anything. You're all, you are going to work till the day you die to always afford that $2,000 a month. Yep. Okay? And, and over time, that expense is going to grow because cost of living increases. And so the little increments you are making aren't doing anything for you. You have to step outside of your comfort zone and go figure out a way to get extra cash flow and stabilize that cash flow. And then we have to take that stabilization above and beyond our needs. We're spending two thousand a month, but we're making three thousand a month, and we take that difference. And instead of spending it on toys or playing or doing whatever, we go put it to work. Maybe I take two hundred and I go play with it. Now I can go to Applebee's. I can I can take my wife on a, on a date. We can go to a movie. We can do some things. But I'm going to take that other 800, right? 75 percent of all my excess, and I'm going to go start putting it into places. Maybe I'm putting it into savings, investments, IRAs, Roth, IRAs, life insurance, or whatever is the best thing for you individually, right? But now that money gets to go to work. There's a book out there, "The richest Man in Babylon." I love that book. Anybody who hasn't read that book needs to read that book. It will That book alone will teach you how to be smart with money. Yep. Because the minute you start getting excess, you need to start taking your money and putting it to work so that your money makes little money babies, right? And those money babies are <laughs> little what money you babies. use. Money time. babies, right? And that's what you use over time to start buying the things you want. Grant Cardone actually talks about this a lot. He'll tell yep. you he's never bought uh, a nice car. He's never bought a nice watch. He's never bought a this or that with his money. His money always goes towards his investments, Right. Yeah. His investments buy those things for him, but yeah. they also buy a lot of other things. So I, I really like that principle.
0: Yeah, yeah, I do too. And I think on that note, a great place to wrap up would be to challenge everybody to read that book, Richest Man in Babylon. Um, fantastic book. Really should be in our high schools. It should be in our colleges. Oh for yeah. For sure. Uh, should be in your library at home. Um, should read some books, you know. Uh, there's a sad stat out there that something like only 3% of all U.S. adults after college will read a full book ever again. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty sad stat. But uh, if you want to change that, you want to change, uh, change your, your life and your design in life, you can go get that book, Richest Man of Babylon. Um, so as we wrap up, Carson, for people to connect with you, uh, what is a good place to go and do
1: that? Yeah, the the best place uh or places to do it are probably Facebook and Instagram. Um Facebook, uh I think y'all have my my Facebook link there. You can find me on Facebook. Um that's where it, it's easiest to find me. If you want to shoot me a message, shoot me a message. I still read all my messages. I have my team in my Facebook, they help me comb through things and weed out the spam, but I still answer all my messages. Um you can find me on an, Instagram at cporter389, I believe. Um and you can find me there. You can find me on LinkedIn. I don't do much there because I'm not looking to recruit or be recruited. And that's about what it's good for, in my opinion. But yeah. um, but you can find me there. Those are the best places to reach me. If you've got, if, if you're in insurance, finance, wealth management, and you've got questions about how to blow your career, I'd love to help you. I don't care if you join my stuff. I want to see you win, succeed, take care of people. That's all that matters. If, um, if you have some questions about your wealth, your finance, I'm happy to answer those. You don't have to do business with me. I just don't want you pushing shopping carts across Walmart or parking across parking lots at Walmart when you're retired. I want you to have the tool and the toy. Um, So, there you go. Love (laughs) it. I love that analogy. Have the tool and the toy.
0: Love it. My friend, this has been a joy. I've really enjoyed our time together today. Uh, Thank you for taking the time out. I know you're a busy man. Um, So, hopefully we kicked your day off, right? Because you're a little bit behind in time zone than I am. Hopefully you're going to go... Continue to rock it today, which I know you will. And thanks for being on the show. Absolutely, appreciate man. it, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. All right, we'll see everybody next week on The Big Ticket Life. Take care. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode of The Big Ticket Life. You've heard from another amazing guest living their own Big Ticket Life, and now it's time to live yours. First, I'd love for you to take me up on my free gift to you. Find your gift at live. That's life Live. See, all your life you've been told what is and what is impossible by the loudest voices from the cheapest seats. It's time to finally do life and business on your terms. Sure, you've heard similar things, but without clarity on what can be done, it's easy to have your customers, employees, maybe even partners, and your spouse keep you from truly living a big-ticket life. My big-ticket methods shift you into that investor seat in your business, away from commodity and away from competition into a market of one so you can finally live your own big ticket life. So my gift to you is for you to book your discovery call today where we'll uncover first the Chivo behaviors, those chief everything officer behaviors that hold you back and why moving into the investor seat in your own business is critical Two, we'll uncover the premium position that's up for grabs right now in your market that you're missing out on. And three, which big ticket methodologies are just waiting to be dropped into your business to explode your sales and profits. So again, thanks for listening to this episode. I'd love for you to take action right now, accept this gift, book your call, go to gift.thebigticketlife.live. Again, that's gift.thebigticketlife.live.